0: Welcome to Questions from the Closet. I'm Ben Shalati.
1: And I'm Charlie Bird. Each episode, we discuss a question we commonly get asked as LGBTQ Latter-day Saints.
0: We are not trying to answer this question or come to a consensus, but simply sharing our perspectives. Today's question is, is sexuality fluid?
1: Ben and I are not terribly diverse, and we share many opinions and life experiences. For example, we both don't drink very much soda, or pop, depending on how you say it.
0: However, there are some pretty big differences. For example, I say soda, and Charlie says pop. But we both used kind to say of. That, what, what do you say?
1: <laughs> so I'm, I'm from the Midwest, or Missouri, the central and some people think the south. So I grew up saying pop, but now I live in Utah. And so I've kind of started saying soda. OK, so I but soda pop is like the most correct form, I think I would say. Oh, well, it's just so long.
0: So I also I also used to say pop because in Seattle, that's what we, what we would say. But I moved to Arizona and they were like very soda heavy there. Yeah. And so I started saying soda.
1: But I don't really drink it very much unless it's like on a road trip. And I Same. need to stay awake. You know, like a Coke or something? Yeah. A Coke
0: and some m ms
1: Well, I usually ew, no. I do like I do like a Mountain Dew and um, corn nuts. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> that's great if you're 14. <laughs> <laughs> I'm forever 14, Ben.
0: Great. I also drink LaCroix lot. I know people hate it and it's really not that good, but I started drinking it when I was taking a, uh, what was it called?
1: You uh, think you're fancy, don't you? No,
0: it's not for being <laughs> fancy. I was in a substance abuse class. And we had to give up a substance for the semester and I gave up sugar. Oh. And sometimes you eat like a really spicy burrito and you like really want a Coke after. And so I would like drink a liqueur like neutralize the desire to have sugar.
1: Ew. Yeah. You always offer me your every time I go to your office. I'm like, no. It's just my thing. Static. Yeah. Anyway. We like to provide a variety of voices and perspectives, and today we're so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Lisa Diamond.
2: I'm so happy to be here.
1: We're so thrilled, Lisa. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: So uh, I've been living here in Utah since 1999. I grew up in Los Angeles, and I did my undergraduate work in Chicago, and then I got my Ph.D. in human development at Cornell University. So fancy. This was the, you know, people are like, why did you choose to move to Utah? And it was because the University of Utah offered me a job and nobody else did. (laughs) But I... I, And they've uh, been
0: thrilled ever since.
2: Well, it just ended up being a, a great fit. I love my department. I love the university. I love Utah. I really fell in love with Utah. And my wife has been doing kind of health policy work and consulting work and her career took off too, so... It ended up being a sort of unexpected home for us.
0: Uh-huh. Did you guys meet here in Utah? Nope,
2: nope. We met at Cornell. And she also is from Southern California. And so when we go back to visit family, we're only really 45 minutes apart from each family. So it mm. turned out pretty well.
0: What was it like being a lesbian couple in Salt Lake in 1990? You know, the thing is Salt Lake,
2: Salt Lake is so different from other places in Utah. Salt Lake is a little bit more like... Any average city. So mm-hmm. when we moved, we were wondering that too. Like, is this going to be weird? Are we going to be uncomfortable? And it was never a thing. It was like never a problem.
0: So
1: welcome to Utah County. <laughs> <laughs> we're so glad you're here. We've got our pitchforks out back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what's your background as far as the Larry Saint culture?
2: You know, I when I moved here with you know, Judy and I moved here we we're like we should read up about the the Mormon church because I guess it's going to be like a part of our life now. <laughs> and you know, so we did our reading, we're like wow, this is a really interesting sort of religion. And I I was not raised religious. My dad was an atheist and my mom, you know, was raised Southern Baptist, but we were not religious. My wife was raised conservative Judaism. So we didn't really know very much. And a lot of what I learned over the years was from my students. You know, Mm -hmm. I was teaching in gender studies, I was teaching a lot of courses on sexuality and on relationships. And I was an out, you know, faculty member. And so a lot of students would Just sort of gravitate toward me and tell me their stories. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I gained a much deeper appreciation for how facile it is for people to tell folks in, you know, conservative religious traditions, oh, well, if, you know, if your church doesn't accept you, just leave, just walk away. And I think that was the attitude I sort of had because I hadn't been raised religious. And I really through hearing the stories of so many students really gained a deeper understanding of the depth of the conflict between your own authentic self and a feeling of disconnection from your entire community yeah. and from your deepest family. And so it became, you know, a larger part of my work over time to see if we could find a better way to Talk to folks and their families that didn't pit the church against psychological Mm well-being, you know, and could create a meeting ground where families and queer and trans and non-binary and all sorts of folks could have safer conversations about sexuality and gender.
0: Yeah, I love that. So it sounds like your exposure to the church has influenced what you study and what totally,
2: you're totally, totally. When you're, uh, for anyone who ends up being in an environment that's different from the way they were raised, you know, you have the opportunity to either be like, "Well, that's crazy," or to be like, "Wow, I'm, I, I don't, I don't understand. Like, what is, what, what is this belief system, and why, and how, and, and I've also learned just over the years from you know conversations with a lot of folks that. You know, obviously, being LDS in Utah and in Salt Lake is very different from being LDS in a lot of other, you know, parts of the country. That is For accurate. Sure.
0: Having been LDS in other, in other parts of the country, that is accurate.
2: <laughs> and so that's been interesting, you know, as well, in terms of realizing that there is there's always diversity within any community mm-hmm. and trying to sort of understand those those intersections.
1: So what prompted you to start researching sexual fluidity?
2: So I started, you know, I didn't set out to study it. When I entered graduate school, which was 1994... In the dark ages?
0: I was Uh, one year old. I was 10.
2: Thank you. Thank you for that. I love that. I just turned 50 this year. So like every time something goes wrong, I'm like, well, I'm 50. It's all downhill from here.
0: I've been saying that since 30. Well,
2: there you go. I was mainly interested in studying women's sexuality and women's sexual orientation because at that time, most of the public published research was on samples of men. And, you know, this was pre-internet. It was hard to do research on queer folk without just kind of going to a bar or like going somewhere and posting a flyer like, hey, are you a gay person? We want to talk to you. And so... With that exact
0: tone, of course.
2: With exactly that tone. And, you know, most of the places where folks would recruit research participants tended to draw way more men than women. And so I kept seeing study after study. that was like, oh, this sample of only men and only men. And I was like, you know, uh, doesn't, doesn't that seem second. like wrong? You know, it it's <laughs> like a, a sort of basic feminist thing, like somebody better study the women. And I guess it's going to be me. So it started out pretty open ended. I was just like, wow, there hasn't you know, there haven't been any really in-depth studies of women's sexual identity development that really include a broad range of women. And so I set out to just do some pretty broad descriptive work on young women, women between like 16 and 23. And one of the things that that I chose to do, and it wasn't even really a choice, it just happened, you know, when, when I would say, oh, I'm doing this, you know, research on women's sexual identity development, and they're like, well, what are you looking for? Are you looking for like lesbians or bisexuals and i was like oh, just really anyone like if you've ever had a same gender attraction like then i'll be happy to interview i i, I don't know I don't, I don't have a criteria for that so i ended up with a nicely kind of diverse group of women some of whom identified as lesbians some of whom identified as bisexual some of whom didn't label their sexuality at all and at that point in the field People who didn't label their sexuality were viewed as being in denial. Mm. And there was a very kind of, uh, it was, it was, I thought it was demeaning. It kind of made me angry because when I would talk to these women and I would just ask these open-ended experiences, they didn't seem to be in denial. They seemed to have a real clear sense that the way that they experienced their sexuality was more complicated than the than the menu of labels that were available mm-hmm. to them. And for a lot of women it was because of this experience of change that, you know, that they the the standard narrative at the time was, "Oh, I have always been attracted to the same gender and then I realized it and I came out and now, you know, you ride off into the sunset." And the women I would talk to would be like, well, I I don't know. I mean, I had relationships with men, uh, you know, and women, and I can't, I I, I don't know. It's just more complicated. Sometimes it changes, and sometimes it seems to be more based on the person that I happen to fall in love with. Mm. And I'm not even sure I'm that aware of their gender. And so I I quickly realized that there was no single developmental model for women that I was going to find. There was no big discovery I was going to make in terms of this is how women's development is. Instead, it was the diversity and the capacity for change and the fact that some individuals appear to be much more receptive to just even the process of falling in love and that for some women... You know, their attractions to women began with falling in love and not with sexual fantasies. You know, and a lot of the literature at that time on men's development seemed very focused on sexual arousal and like, when did you first experience sexual arousal for a man? And, you know, one of the things that we now know just from other research is that, you know, we don't really encourage girls growing up to to be very attentive to their own experiences of sexual arousal. Mm -hmm. You can't see it the way you can if you're a boy. We don't encourage girls to even know that much about their body. And so women often were like, I'm not even sure I know what arousal is. You know, they had spent so long, you know, because the culture tells all women, it's your job to keep your legs closed. It's your job to say no. Men are always going to push, and it's your job to resist. And so growing up as a girl, you know, a lot of women have a lot of anxiety and fear about desire in general, because desire is going to get you in trouble. And Deborah Tolman has done a lot of great writing on this. And so for a lot of women, it was falling emotionally in love with another woman sort of allowed them to kind of let their guard down and feel and feel desire, you know, and and they were like, I I don't know if I had this capacity before, I literally was unable to even ask myself that question of what do I want. So the capacity for fluidity is something that's sort of bubbled up out of the data. And initially, I really thought it was more true of women than men. But Over the years, as I've started, you know, talking to more men and doing more research on men, I really think that fluidity is a basic feature of human sexuality, that we have orientations, but those orientations aren't nearly as categorical or deterministic as we historically have thought of them.
1: So help me understand what that looks like in practice. Because I know with like people I know, clients I see, and even in myself, there was this Hope that sexuality was fluid enough to change orientation because if I could change my orientation, then I wouldn't have any incongruence with my culture, with yep. my religion, with my with yep. my beliefs, like you were saying. and I feel like most discussions I've heard around sexual fluidity are kind of in this conversion therapy based mindset yeah.
2: and that is that's been sort of the biggest bugaboo in my life and my work mm-hmm. because it didn't take very long after I started publishing some of my findings for people to use some of my work as a justification for the ethics of conversion therapy. Oof. And in my own research, and I and I mention it clearly in all of my writing, that the changes that the women in my study experienced, they experienced as being almost like the way the weather changes. It was not willful. And some of them actually did try to direct their own attractions in one way or the other, and they all failed. And Mm. so I like to say that fluidity is like the weather. It may change, but we don't change it. That it the weather is a dynamic system. You know, it has its own parameters and we don't fully understand them. And I think the same is true for sexuality. Those changes do not appear to be amenable to forcible change. And whenever people do try to forcibly change their attractions, the the results are psychologically damaging, just mm-hmm. invariably. And so I, I've, I've tried to be as clear as I can about that. But I get emails all the time from people who are like, you know, do you know that someone is citing your work, you know, to say that, Sexual orientation can change, and I'm always like, "Oh, not again!" Like, what? Mm-hmm. What? You know, tell me what? To, do you want me to release a statement? I'll release a statement. I'll release an affidavit. It even came up in the um, the uh, same sex marriage case in oh. 2015. Really? Yeah, a legal group, uh, a conservative Republican legal group, filed an affidavit in that case, claiming that if sexuality is fluid. You know, as Lisa Diamond's work shows, well, then, then there is no population. <laughs> Doctor Lisa Diamond, thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, yeah. Then there is no LGBTQ population that can be discriminated against by uh, a law prohibiting same gender marriage, mm. because if sexuality is fluid, then there are no like there there is no stable group that's being discriminated right. against in the way that. You know, ethnic minorities are, and so the lawyers contacted me, and they're like, "They seem to be misusing." And you're like, "Would you like to submit a statement?" So I submitted an affidavit for that.
1: Wow. Um, I, I was chuckling because I was like, <laughs> "Imagine you being like, here, let me go talk to my wife about that."
2: You know, it was one of those <laughs> things where I remember where I was sitting at like the dining room table and reading my email and just feeling like that roller coaster feeling you know i'm like how how can this be happening that your own your own life's work is turned against you and turned against wow you know your own family and your own community and that continues to happen and all i can do is just be as absolutely clear as i can be that Fluidity is not the same as conversion therapy. That change that occurs through the dynamics of just human psychology is not the same as sitting down with a clinician who, who is basically agreeing that what you feel and who you are is unworthy mm-hmm. and is so terrible that the only way to be happy is to change it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just an inhumane way to approach. And, you know, by, by the same token, I also, in, in the conversations I've had with a lot of clinicians working with LDS uh, queer folks, you know, that there are very real therapeutic issues about how to reconcile a religious identity and a sexual identity mm-hmm. and a personal identity and a racial and ethnic identity. Those are all things that good clinicians can do, but there is no decent clinician that forcibly tries to change anything about a client. That's just not the way licensed therapists practice. And most of the individuals who are offering conversion therapy practices are not actually APA-accredited psychologists. And the APA has made it clear that this is not an evidence-based practice. It's a practice that does harm. Mm-hmm. And it's a practice that is hard to justify given the evidence for harm that, that it does So,
0: So Lisa, what I'm hearing you say is sexuality can be fluid for some people, maybe even a lot of people, but it's not something that we can actively change, but sometimes based on the people we're interacting with Mm -hmm. and who we might fall in love with, uh, someone's orientation, it wouldn't wouldn't be the orientation. Well, you know,
2: maybe a better word to think of is patterning, you know, that individuals have predispositions, they have patterns of desire. And and then they have behavior, which is a totally separate thing. And then there's identity, which is a totally separate thing, too. So you've got desire, you've got behavior, and you've got your own sort of meaning how you make sense of yourself. And those, you know, the only only ones that you can actively control are your behavior and your identity. You can choose whether or not to engage in any behavior, and you can choose how to think of yourself. But you don't choose your desires. You just don't. Mm -hmm. They happen to you. And frankly, the the field of psychology still doesn't know very much about where desires come from and why they take the forms that they do. You know, this has not been a topic that the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health has seen fit to throw millions of dollars at. So when my students ask me, like... They well, should throw that at you. I, You know, <laughs> they, I've tried. They, Let me make they a won't. phone call. <laughs> and, you know, my students will be like, well, what is a desire? How do you know, like, what's the difference between you know like finding someone like visually appealing and wanting to have sex with them and what's the difference between desire and arousal and pleasure and i'm like these are all great questions and i can tell you for sure because i've looked into it that we don't have the answers (laughs) so desire and sexuality are immensely complex and so you know partly for that reason any attempt to change desires it's like well which lever you're going to pull like there's you know it's a brain phenomenon it's a somatic phenomenon it's a psychological phenomenon the idea that it's like oh well think hard enough and something will go away
1: pray hard uh, enough
2: yeah it does it's 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 like it's like looking at an airliner and saying why don't you push that over there it's like Okay, this is an airliner. Like, you know, it's an airplane. How are you going to what you can't push it? It's it's its own thing. You wouldn't even know how to push it. What, you know, do you push on the wheel? Do you push on the tail? Do you push on the, the
0: gas pedal? Yeah. So
2: you know, <laughs> anyone you who claims <laughs> that, <laughs> So anyone who claims that they know how to change sexual desire or sexual attractions. You know, right away, you know, there's something wrong there because no one who knows anything about sexual attraction, you know, knows how to change it or even knows completely where it comes from Uh, and how it develops. We're still in like baby step territory.
1: Well, thank you for clearing that up. And I'm really sorry that your research has been used in ways that you don't agree with and that actually like threaten your own relationship. That must be really difficult. But cool that it's cited in a Supreme Court case. Yeah. <laughs> like, ooh, good for you. Um, it's like
2: the worst 15 minutes way. of fame ever. <laughs> <laughs> 15 minutes of shame.
0: You are a traitor to your
1: own people. Yeah, yeah, really. So something you touched on is something that I mean we've we've said and I have like kind of had to work through a lot with myself, where sexual orientation for me was always presented as strictly sexual and strictly behavioral. And so, cause that's where like elements of acting on it and sin will come in from a religious perspective. And so for a long time, I viewed my orientation as something that was 100% sexual in nature. And it took me a while. And actually it took, it was, it was hard to shake myself from that and realize that orientation is so much more robust than that. And that my sexual orientation is often in my case, pretty much always aligned with my emotional orientation and my intellectual orientation Mm -hmm. and spiritual orientation. Like it's not just sexual. And and that's something I kind of try to drive home time and time again, because I know how damaging it was for me to view myself through a strictly sexual lens and view all relationships and potential for relationships through that lens and kind of deny that I am oriented towards men Mm -hmm. and in, in many romantic and spiritual and intellectual facets and and it makes sense you know this fluidity and you know I don't have much experience and maybe this is a dumb thing to say but like I remember going on a date with this guy a first first date with this guy and I was like wasn't that I didn't think he was that hot as I got to know him better I was like oh I'm becoming much more attracted to this person because there were other elements of his personality that were like ringing true to what I'm naturally attracted to and so from that standpoint the idea of sexual fluidity or attraction fluidity, I guess, mm-hmm. makes sense to me. And I feel like that's a pretty universal experience when dating.
2: Your sexuality is not a it's not like a limb you can cut off. Our sexual lives are deeply intertwined with our capacity to bond and, you know, how we experience emotional attachment. And that is a part of our sexual selves as well. The emotions come with it, you know. That's why the fight for marriage was—you know—that was not a fight to have sex. That was a fight to fall in love and develop a lifelong commitment, you know, to someone. Yeah.
0: So, thank you so much for sharing that, Lisa. Could, could you walk us through, like, a typical person? I know there's that no such a thing as a typical huh? person, but like, like, what does this experience of sexual fluidity look like in in someone that you've studied?
2: So. Like one of the, I have two examples that I often use because they come from different ends of the spectrum, but they sort of verbalize something similar. So one was a woman who I interviewed, who was an undergraduate at Cornell when I interviewed her, and she was roommates with her best friend from high school. So they were best friends. They both went to Cornell. They were roommates. And they were so emotionally close to each other she said that the you know living together they were spending all their time together they they would cuddle all the time and she said that it just spilled over into kissing and that and they kept stopping and saying like what is happening like what what i don't think i'm I, what I I think I'm straight, but why is that? And they basically just fell in love with each other, and they had this affair for two years that they told nobody about because each of them felt that they were probably straight, and this was an exception, but it was still real. It was still happening. And they kept sort of testing out their own orientation by, like, they would go to the quad and look at other women and be like, are you attracted to other women? And I'm like, what about her? No. What about her? No. But you, you, yes, you, for <laughs> sure, you. And one of the things that made my study kind of interesting and unique is that I stayed in touch with all the women that I interviewed. And I would touch base with them about every two to three years. I actually did the 22-year follow-up interviews a few years ago. So that those two women, they did end up breaking up and... One of them ended up coming out as bisexual and ended up, you know, much later on with both women and men. And the my respondent, the one who who I first recruited into the study, ended up deciding that yeah, you know, that she was heterosexual and she married a man and has children. And she would say like, yeah, it was that was a real thing. Like I wasn't wrong about my feelings for her. It's just that they were more about her and I don't regret it. It was wonderful and it wasn't it wasn't delusion, it wasn't confusion. It was the truth of that relationship. Mm. And there was another woman I interviewed.
0: So so in her case it wasn't it wasn't her orientation, it was the situation.
2: Yeah, and that with that relationship and and she said, "You know, if I hadn't met her, Maybe I never would have ever explored that side of my sexuality, but I feel better about myself knowing that I'm capable of that sort of love and that, you know, that connection, that my sexuality is, is complicated and, and I was able to have this powerful, profound experience that was not a mistake and wasn't wrong. It was absolutely right and it's absolutely consistent with my whole self. And I think that that kind of self-acceptance of yes, I had this experience, maybe it's only one time or a couple of times, maybe it's not going to be where I end up in terms of my commitment, but that doesn't mean there's anything about it that is shameful, wrong, mistaken, maladjusted. You know, if you think about how we try to raise children and I've I've thought about this more because my Sister has two kids that I'm very close to. One of them is 16 and one of them is 20. And as we've watched them grow, you know, all we really want is for them to be aware of their motives and their feelings and their desires, to be kind to themselves and to others, to be respectful, to be honest. And if that's what you want children to do and be, then that means that when they have sexual or romantic relationships that are unusual or surprise you or surprise them, that all you really want is for them to have the presence of mind to be like, wow, what does this mean for me? And what does this mean for this other person? And how can I use this as an opportunity to know myself better? And, you know, what what do I want in my life? That's, you know." those are the conversations that we should be encouraging all kids Mm -hmm. to have about their intimate, emotional, and physical
0: lives. Can I ask you a follow-up question to that before we get to the second example? I'm imagining someone who is in a marriage and they're thinking, oh, shoot, I might find myself attracted to my best friend when Mm -hmm. I don't want to be. What would you say to someone who's like afraid of maybe developing an attraction that they don't want?
2: You know, I— you could argue, like, why are you more afraid of it if it's, like, your same-gender best friend than or than being afraid of it for, like, someone at work? You know, this state of being uh, an adult living, breathing sexual person is the state of having attractions to people who are not attracted to you or that you don't want to be involved with or people that are inappropriate.
0: Well, so many... Experiences being attracted to people who aren't attracted to me
2: Exactly, <laughs> or it's like people at work or your boss and it's like someone who's inappropriate ben, So for
1: me, it's the opposite
2: <laughs> Unwanted <laughs> that's that, that the of
1: difference. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Unwanted <laughs> attractions are par for the course. The difference is whether you apply shame to yourself
0: mm, that's And that's whether
2: you think like oh i'm terrible for having a crush on my sister's, you know, uh, boyfriend or for, you know, this person or that person. I'm I'm a terrible person. No one is a terrible person for their attractions. Now, choosing to, you know, go after your sister's husband or choosing to uh, violate boundaries that you've set with your partner, we always have choices over our behavior. But there are no attractions that should bring shame. The the human mind – and people often have a lot of anxiety about their fantasies, their sexual fantasies. Sexual fantasies don't predict much of anything. Sexual fantasies are like random crazy stuff going on in your brain. And you know, I tell my undergraduate students all all the time, I'm like, I know that probably some of you think, oh, my God, I have the craziest sexual desires of anybody I know. And I'll be like – You know, the human species has been on this planet for a long time. There's literally nothing you can fantasize about that hasn't been fantasized (laughs) about by somebody else. Don't worry. Your desires are not abnormal and your desires are not shameful and your fantasies aren't shameful and they're not unnatural. The human brain is crazy And if you can just kind of embrace that diversity and not apply shame and judgment, it's not a weakness, it's not a failing. Yeah, sometimes you're going to have unwanted sexual desires. Okay, welcome to being human. Mm
0: -hmm. So what you're saying is this person is beautiful, they're attractive, we connect well, I admire them. It's just normal that I'd be attracted to.
2: It's them. normal. And yeah, it can be really inconvenient and really distracting mm-hmm. if you're really crushed out on someone that, you know, you don't want to be crushed out on. But that is also a part of life, mm-hmm. you know? And I think we talk to children about this all the time. And and suddenly we change the way we talk about it when it comes to same gender relationships. Well, you know we t- we tell kids all the time like oh yeah if if you have a crush on your best friend's girlfriend, yeah, that really sucks. It really sucks to watch your best friend have someone that you want. You know there's nothing shameful about that. It's just, yeah, you want something you can't have, darn, <laughs> you know, welcome to being human, but when it comes to same gender attractions, then people apply these extra layers of shame. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it can be uncomfortable to want something that, you know, you can't have or you don't want to want. But that is that's not a source of shame. It's just part of the challenge of being human.
0: Okay, so let's do another hypothetical. Let's say Charlie is shaming me for having a crush on a 25 year old. I'm 37. It's
2: not nice. No shaming.
1: Did I do that? Shame I, is I probably, bad. I probably did. <laughs> Who do you have a crush on? This 25. So what was the other example <laughs> <that> you had? <laughs> so the other
2: example was a oh, woman. Like, can I interject oh, yeah. first? Go ahead.
1: So I was thinking, and this is back when you were talking about like the fluidity being more like the weather. I was just curious how, how you see that working in a monogamous, mm. monogamous relationship where like someone is married and they like tied it down with the same person and all of a sudden like change in weather because i could i feel like that could be scary for some people
2: it can absolutely be scary and the truth is that changes in erotic templates and changes in all dimensions of sexuality just sex drive for one is something that all marriages have to contend with and as long and you know and what i tell my students when i lecture about this is you know every person in a marriage has the right to ask for something that they want. And every person has the right to say no. And the trick is to be open, loving and gentle when you're maintaining your boundaries. If you have a, a, a partner that's like, you know, I, I think I might want to explore, you know, this particular new part of my sexuality. You know, the other person can be like, I, I've I'm okay with that or I'm not okay with that. But that isn't just about same gender issues. That could be almost any issue, you know, between two people in a long-term relationship. And so, yeah, is, is it possible that after 20 happy years with your spouse, you'll suddenly have new desires that scare you? Yeah, it is absolutely possible. And that could be a same gender attraction. It could be the decline of any attractions. It could be a whole bunch of things. And we have to remember that our sexuality develops over our lifespan in the same way that our hair grows and changes. And part of what healthy couples are able to do is to maintain open communication so that they can try to navigate those changes together in a safe way and not judge one another and say, how could you possibly want that? How could you possibly think that? That is an obstacle to intimacy.
0: That just sounds so mature though.
2: I know it's hard to be mature and it's hard because our culture doesn't teach folks to have open conversations about sexuality, even with our partners. They, you know, there's this sense you get when you're a teenager that once you meet the right person, Uh, sex just happens wonderfully, naturally, you never have to communicate, you never have to say something like, you know, I'd like to try something slightly different, it's supposed to just happen naturally and beautifully, and no one has to talk about it. And that's just that just does a disservice to, you know, kids growing up, you know, And, and when I lecture about this to my undergraduates, I'm like, yeah, I know, you probably think that, you know, good sex just happens naturally. And I'm here to tell you, no. It's a skill. You know, I couldn't take you to a tennis court and give you a tennis racket and say go play great tennis. It takes time to and you have to figure out you have to be able to communicate and we do not train teenagers to communicate about their desires in a safe and secure way. We make it so shameful that no one is comfortable saying anything, and that's where all the trouble starts.
0: Well, tell us about the other the other example you have. Oh, so the other example
2: was a woman who had been, you know, a, a out and proud lesbian for you know, like 5 years, and she unexpectedly fell in love with her best male friend. And they had been... Was it Charlie Bird? It was not Charlie Bird. (laughs) It was not me. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, you know, I I still think I'm a lesbian. Like, this kind of happened, and it was fine, but I think I'm I'm still only really interested in women. He's kind of an exception, but it was still a good relationship. And it was like the same sort of thing, like, you know, I don't think this is so much my permanent pattern, but this relationship... Had its own reality and its own erotic energy that you know was authentic and real, but deviated from her regular pattern. And I, again, it just—it's not just a matter of heterosexual people being fluid enough to try same gender relationships it, It's on all ends of the spectrum. There's there's the potential for fluidity everywhere, and I think that again, it's it's just a property of the human brain. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so as you're talking, I can imagine a listener being like, okay, my orientation is towards the same sex, but Lisa Diamond, Dr. Lisa Diamond, has not given me enough hope that if I just meet enough people of the opposite sex and develop deep enough relationships, I can find that one person. What are your thoughts?
2: I think that people, of course, can make whatever choices in their life they want to make. That seems to be... I can't I, I have no idea how many people you would have to meet in order for the chances of that to be high enough. but that as a strategy for happiness is misguided. The strategy for happiness is to love and accept yourself. And things may change, your life may change. but instead of waiting, for, you know, and it's almost like, you know, people I know who haven't met the right person that they want to marry, regardless of gender. It's like, you know, you can, if you wait for chance to make your life better, you're going to have a pretty miserable life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's totally understandable that some individuals wish that they could just fall in love with the right heterosexual partner and wouldn't that make life easier and certainly it would but that if that happened if you did find that unicorn and fell in love with that person you would still have a deep core of shame deep down inside Mm -hmm. that you would have been spared the work of dismantling because you happened to meet someone who allowed you to just like oh phew i made it That deep kernel of shame that so many queer people live with, that is what does real harm psychologically. And even someone who did happen to meet that unicorn, I would still encourage them to spend some time trying to unravel that shame and try to find a core of self-love because that shame will debilitate you.
1: That was so beautifully said. Not to mention reciprocity, too. I just thought of that, like, even if you find the unicorn, who says the unicorn likes you? (laughs) you
2: (laughs) And for their, you know, this was something that I think the church had to wrestle with, that there was a historical period where individuals who confessed to their leaders that they were struggling with same-sex attractions were told, you know, just get married and It'll go away, and it'll be all right. And the marriages that dissolved 10 years later were sort of proof that that didn't work very well. And there were a lot of women, because it was men who would get this advice, and there were a lot of women who said, you know, that the church, by giving that advice to my husband, robbed me of an authentic relationship because his motives for marrying me were not the same as my motives for marrying him. You know, I thought that this was my, you know, my ideal partner. And for him, I was a way to escape the shame. Mm -hmm. And that's not a solid foundation for any marriage.
0: So how do you fix the shame? No, we'll do that for a different episode.
2: Therapy, therapy, therapy. (laughs) We
1: actually have two episodes on that. We do, actually. Episode three with Stacey Harkey. And I don't remember the other one, but there is a common thread of it through everything. (laughs) So I was thinking earlier, too, about like, I'm because... I'm looking at this kind of through a couple different lenses, one of different people I know, and then two for me personally. And obviously that's the one that I'm most fluent in. And I I just mentioned that experience where I I like developed more of an attraction for someone that initially I wasn't as attracted to. And I was trying to think of like times I've been confused by feeling, feelings of attraction or like confusion towards the opposite sex Mm. and girls I was dating and whether it be like aesthetic attraction or with with me like the stronger feelings i ever had towards girls was more from like a beauty hmm. and aesthetic space and it's just cuz i i love like performing arts i love mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. art and beauty and so i i would like try to tap so hard into that and convert that element of like i am pulled towards this into sexual attraction mm-hmm. And that never worked for me. I was never able to flip that the other way around. Whereas like, hmm, I'm not super sexually attracted to this guy, but as I learn more about his personality, other parts of my orientation supplement that aspect. Whereas with girls, it's like I have this, but it doesn't, it can't transfer into the sexual attraction or any physicality. Yeah. Does that make sense?
2: That makes sense. And I've heard that from a lot of people that there's this confusion of like, well, I'm enjoying, like, looking at them, and I can I can visually enjoy like their body. And what's the difference between that and arousal? And it's I think our culture also makes it hard because we see so many highly stylized and sexualized images of so many beautiful bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So we're bombarded with these kind of visual images. And so, and we are told that the state of being attracted to someone means liking the way they look. And yes, that's a part of it, but it's not the whole tamale. And so trying to latch on to one thing, like, you know, I, I like the way you look and trying to turn that into everything, it never works. It just never works. And I think the increasing proliferation of images on like Instagram and social media, I think for a lot of kids growing up, it can be very confusing. It's like, what am I experiencing? Do I want that person or do I want to be and look like that person? Mm -hmm. And what's the difference between admiration and desire? And we have so many visual images flooding us now that I I think it makes that process even more confusing
0: interesting hmm. yeah 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 as you guys were talking I was thinking about I don't think I've really experienced much sexual fluidity, honestly. Uh, but there was so
1: rigid, Ben. I know
0: I'm so rigid. Uh, but there's this, honestly,
1: there, I kind of am too. Uh, there's,
0: there was, <laughs> there was this woman in my first master's program that I did in Spanish and we were really close and she was really beautiful and really cool and really fun. And I had a crush on her. I told her that I was gay. She thought that was great. And we flirted a ton. And then one day we like cuddled and held hands and it was great. Like I felt like we connected really nicely. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of days, we're like, we're going to date. And then one, once it was like, we're dating, I was like, I'm done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Existential dread. <Yeah.
0: laughs> I don't want to say I anymore. can relate to that. <laughs> and then she, that. That she hated me for all eternity. <laughs>
1: oh, well, yeah. and I, I was thinking back to my examples. Sorry for being so selfish in the way, but I mean, like I said, this is my experience. But I, I think the kicker was, like you were saying earlier, it's like, forcing it versus not forcing it mm. where it was me trying to change the weather rather than go with yeah. the way the weather went and the weather never really went the way I initially wanted it to go. You it know?
2: rarely does. You know? yeah. It just rarely does.
1: And I think also talking to a lot of youth, there's this idea of like confusion. And I think even you talked about this. Maybe I talked about this in my book. I don't know who this book is it was yeah. at this point, but, but it's just the idea that like, there'd be like a popular guy who played football and I was like, I just want to be like him. Mm. I, I just admire him. And that's mm-hmm. why I feel this. I think and, we
0: actually both wrote about that. And
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh gosh. See, similarities <laughs> but, and difference. But Mostly who, similarities.
0: Who I haven't read my book for a while.
1: But then when there was a girl who was like smart and, you know, like beautiful cheerleader, whatever, I'd be like, I love her. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'd like try to force that into the place I wanted it to go when it really was just like, admiration yeah, and and you were saying like what's like where is the connection between like admiration or even envy and being attracted to someone and then like actually just being attracted to them and i think sometimes that can be confusing because it can overlap, and yeah. I think often does. Yeah, and but-
2: and again, it's like part of you know. Often, it's admiring someone that first makes us even notice them, right? You know, and and I still like I was telling my wife, you know, just yesterday, there was some place we were, and I was just watching her talk and interact, you know, at, at this sort of party. And I was just, uh, we've been together for 27 years.
0: That's almost as old as Charlie. Oh, there you go. That's so cute.
2: And, you know, I just, I sort of like just hung back and like was listening to her talk and, and you know, I was like, oh, she's just the smartest and the funniest person here. Like, oh. and it was just this, enjoyment of like, and that's my wife, right? <laughs> so that admiration can absolutely be a part of what you desire, you know, in someone. But the problem is that when, you know, again, when you have this category in your mind of like, what I'm supposed to want, and what I do want, and you start to hyper analyze everything. That's when people just get into their own headspace. And they start just like, you can analyze yourself today death instead of just letting your feelings and your instincts guide you. It's not to say that all instincts are correct, but I I do think that often we get ourselves into a big kind of spiral of confusion and shame if we're like, "Well, why don't I want what I should want? You know, what what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me?" And there's nothing wrong with with you. There's nothing wrong with anyone humans are complicated you know we don't shame ourselves for wanting foods that you know that we wouldn't want to eat 10 times a day it's like you know yeah cheese crunchies they're delicious you know you we don't you shame want ourselves brand flakes. yeah it's like oh i should really want an apple it's like yeah you can want an apple sometimes and you can also want cheese crunchies and like it's okay.
0: I don't know what a cheese crunchy is, but it sounds awesome. Well, like cheese balls.
1: If you, you go to China? Trader
2: Joe's, they have these, uh, they're, they're reduced fat cheese crunchies. My my wife is completely addicted to them. And, and until... She sounds amazing. She's, she is amazing. Until they opened up a Trader Joe's here in Salt Lake, every time a friend was in California, she would have them buy her like 10 bags of cheese crunchies. And... You know, she is a healthy person, but... Uh, a healthy life can involve some cheese crunchies. She doesn't feel bad about <laughs> herself for wanting them, and she shouldn't.
1: Da, 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 da. This episode brought to you by Cheese Crunchies. <laughs> Trader from Joe's. Trader Joe's.
2: Fat cheese crunchies. <laughs> They're delicious.
1: How's that for product yeah. placement?
2: <laughs> There's literally like five bags like in our attic right now. <laughs> the supply.
0: All right, is it okay if I just kind of like summarize what I've heard so far? <laughs> okay. just sure ben,
1: stop sounding like a therapist. I, I just, just, what is this, motivational interviewing?
2: What I'm interviewing? hearing yeah. is... <laughs> okay, so what
0: you're saying is we we have an orientation. Mm-hmm. That orientation can vary based on situations, but it's not something that we can choose or change. It just kind of happens.
2: I, I often think a better way to think of it is not that the orientation changes, but it's like you have your orientation, and then there's like a little variability around it, almost like you know you're driving down a street, And you know, between two lines, and sometimes you're a little closer to the line, and sometimes you kind of cross over the white line. And yeah, you're going in the same direction, but as you go down that long pathway of your life, sometimes you're you know crossing over some lines and so you still have a pull to your general pattern but at any particular moment that might not be where you are at that moment
1: do you think everyone has like their own individual orientation bell curve i do
2: i've actually oh, that's I like that. that's that's sort of a thought that i've had it's like because there are some people who are more stable than others yeah and so i I'm like to think of, of it like histograms as histograms
1: as you're talking well it's
2: like every person has sort of like two different things They have their overall orientation, and then they have their particular degree of fluidity. Variance, And some folks are very rigid, and some folks are not. And none of that is willful. And I, I often use my sister as an example. She's heterosexual. She is smart and great and she's you know a big part of my life and so she knows all about fluidity and she she looks like you she must be beautiful well she she is quite beautiful and she is you know she's like tried to see if she could be attracted to women and she's just not like so she's as open as a person can be but she's a pretty stable heterosexual that's just her jam and that's fine and so it's it's something that can vary from person to person And I sometimes worry that as people have more knowledge about fluidity, then they might like judge people who aren't fluid. It's like, well, have you are you denying your fluidity? It's like whenever we start to get into the language of you're in denial of this or you're in denial of that, that's just another form of shame and just another form of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. People are different. And we I think we could all use a little more openness and gentleness about differences between the way we experience our sexuality and differences between and, and other people. And I think one of the difficulties in the LGBT community is that. You know, we form these communities on the basis of shared experience, on the basis of you felt that way. I felt that way, too. I hated myself. I hated myself, too. Right.
0: Oh, and those are be- fun group nights. Well, the thing here.
2: is they, that <laughs> brings people together, but then they sort of overgeneralize. And it's For like, sure. well, I didn't. Well, well, that sounds different from what I experienced. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, there's still going to be diversity in the community. Not like some people knew when they were 10. Some people didn't know until they were 20. Neither one of those people is wrong. It's just a different experience, and it doesn't mean that one person is less authentic or more in denial. You know, we we need to be a little more open and accepting of diversity yeah. within the, this broad spectrum of sexuality.
1: I love that. We're like different equations with different standard deviations, and yeah. that's great.
2: And I think historically, you know, people would be like, well, what do you mean you didn't know until you were 20? Were you... Hiding it were you and it's like maybe that so person's experience <laughs> it's just different, and we need to be kind of more open and accepting of of that kind of difference
1: I like that and 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 I'm just thinking about how there's like it, it keeps coming back to there's not like your equation or your standard deviation or or whatever it is, however you are envisioning this in your head is yours and it doesn't mean you should have like a goal of something different exactly it doesn't need to look like somebody else's. Or it doesn't even necessarily need to look like you, your ideal and accepting reality. It, it's kind of like bringing like mindfulness into this oh, and, and just kind of like that's
2: perfect. I love that. You
1: know, I, I was I was talking with <clears throat> so I can do this now too, Ben. I was with a client the other day <laughs> and I, you know, there's like the adage of like think of thoughts like leaves on a river. Mm. And like if you just say there's a leaf and then let it go down the river. And if it doesn't go down the river, just be like, oh, it's still here. Mm -hmm. And don't really like put a lot of judgment, shame, attach different labels to it because you think it should stay or go. It's more like accepting where it is. And then that's information you can use to impact how you feel about yourself and your relationships and kind of like situate and orient you in your life in a healthier way than saying, oh, I wish I was somewhere else.
2: Oh, I love that. I think that's a great way to think about it. And I, I do think that that kind of mindfulness of like, I am noticing something I'm experiencing and I'm noticing something I'm feeling and I can make whatever meaning of it I want, but it itself is just existing.
1: And it seems like it gives it less power there. Mm -hmm. Like if you are attracted to your sister's husband or whatever, like notice that and then it doesn't have power because you're not... Mm -hmm. It's it's almost like the reverse. Like you think if you oh, go away, go away, go away. Well, that's all you're thinking about. Yeah,
2: you actually make it. You ruminate about it. You make it more stressful. Yeah. You know, I I have you know since I teach a, an undergraduate course on love and relationships, you know, a lot of students hit me up with a lot of questions about their relationships. And, you know, there was one uh, woman who said, you know, I, I love my boyfriend and we've been together for like two years and I th- thought I was going to marry him. And I started to become attracted to somebody else. Is, is that a sign that we shouldn't be together because I've developed a, an attraction to somebody else? And you like, said yes. I said, it's a sign that you're a human being. <laughs> uh, you know, newsflash, you're going to be attracted to other people other than your partner that's why people make arrangements for monogamy. Like that, like commitment would be meaningless if you never were tempted, right? So for individuals who are in monogamous relationships, the existence of feelings outside of your partner, that is part of the human condition. That's why commitment has value because it's mm-hmm. saying I am choosing not to betray our monogamous relationship that would be a meaningless commitment if you were never attracted to somebody it would be the easiest thing in the world so it is the existence of diverse fluid attractions that makes it meaningful to say to someone i'm choosing to only be intimate with you that is only a gift it's only an honorable thing if you're giving up something
1: lisa you know what I really like you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that makes me very happy. This is great.
1: And uh, I think it's going to be super thought-provoking for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It is for me. Yeah, same. You're, you're just fun.
2: Oh, that makes me happy.
1: And I
0: wish the listeners could see you. Oh, you're
2: with my, with my uh, unkempt hair.
0: I, I like it. It's funky. So, Lisa, what are you working on now?
2: So, I'm doing a study right now that's focusing on transgender and non-binary and sort of the whole spectrum of gender fluidity and gender fluidity also exists and individuals can undergo changes in how they view their gender expression and there's a lot more gradations than just transgender and not transgender there's like a whole spectrum and especially here in Utah uh, individuals on that spectrum often feel a lot of shame and they have a sort of chronic feeling of, of just not being completely safe and not having access to the sort of routine social connection and protection that, that most of us treat as our birthright, that, you know, that you go home and you're with your family and you can be yourself. And for a lot of individuals on the gender spectrum, They do not experience that in their families. They do not experience that at work. They do not experience that in a lot of different places. And we know that feelings of shame and rejection actually powerfully trigger our immune systems to release chemical messengers called cytokines that are associated with what's called systemic inflammation. It's basically the body's response to any threat. It's the same thing that happens when you have an infection, but when it has a social cause, it's more systemic. It's in your whole body. And we know that that kind of inflammation over the lifespan is associated with cardiovascular disease, with asthma, with arthritis, with diabetes. There's some studies that suggest that over 50% of deaths worldwide can be traced to systemic inflammation and we now know that one of the most powerful triggers is social rejection and uh, so
0: feeling rejected can cause physical harm
2: feeling rejected can cause physical harm and that physical harm usually doesn't show up right away it'll show up 10-15 years later but mm. you can detect it right away in the blood so what we're doing is we are kind of do, you know collecting a lot of questionnaire data and also blood spots from gender diverse folks here in Salt Lake City to get a sense of how safe they feel in their families and in their relationships and in their workplaces. What kind of stress do they experience? And then what's their level of inflammation? And we're hoping to follow people over time. You know, with the I, you know, in my ideal world, if we can prove to families and schools and workplaces, hey, the rejection that you're doing to gay people, to trans people, to ethnic minorities, because the same thing happens with ethnic and racial discrimination and marginalization. Any form of social marginalization can provoke this inflammatory response. And it's toxic to the body. And maybe if you can show people like, look, I can find that rejection in your bloodstream. So stop doing this. Stop doing this. And uh, so we're still collecting data. And so we are really, really interested in getting a sample that includes individuals across the whole spectrum of gender diversity. And the study basically involves filling out an online questionnaire. And then, you know, doing these like we send you a little thing and you just do five little drops of blood and that allows us to measure your inflammation. And it's the first systematic study of this topic in gender diverse individuals. There hasn't been a lot of work on this at all. And well, look at
0: you breaking new ground. That's fascinating. We're trying That's to. Really we're trying to. We're
2: also collecting the same data from individuals across the spectrum of sexual diversity. So we've sort of already finished collecting data from a whole bunch of lesbian, gay, bisexual individuals across the whole spectrum of sexual diversity. And so then we started this other kind of arm of the study looking at gender diversity. And I think it's really important work.
0: Well, thank you, Lisa, Doctor Lisa Diamond, uh,
2: and anyone who wants to hear more can just, you know, my mother has informed me that if you Google Lisa Diamond Utah, you find my university website. <laughs> you don't even have easily. to Google
1: Utah. I googled you today, and you have a Wikipedia page. Oh
2: well, you know, my my uh, niece and nephew did inform me of that.
1: <laughs> Popular. We love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an honor, and this has been a super cool conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you have enjoyed this or other episodes, please consider leaving a review, following us on Instagram or Facebook at questions from the closet, or sharing this podcast with someone you love. As always, please remember that we do not represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Brigham Young University. We are not trying to be prescriptive or tell anyone what to think or what to do.
0: You heard three perspectives and there are many, many more. We encourage you to listen to other voices and hear a wide variety of experiences. If you'd like to submit a question or share a comment about today's episode, you can email us at questionsfromthecloset at gmail.com. Until next time.